You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Can't wait to get to this episode with Alan Donegan and Simon Payne about the Rebel Business School. But before we do, I just wanted to remind you that we are still taking surveys, getting more information about you, the listener of Earn and Invest. This allows us to do two things. One is we have advertisers and we'd want to make sure our advertisers actually appeal to those of you listening. If you're going to have to listen to them, you might as well be interested in what they're about. The other is it helps me shape the type of episodes we have by knowing more about you, the community. Go to earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, earnandinvest.com slash survey. It'll take you literally a few minutes. It's anonymous. It costs you nothing, but helps me quite a bit. Thanks again. I'm Alan Donegan. This is Simon Payne, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. MIT Sloan, $237,000. UCLA Anderson, $220,000. Michigan Ross, $193,000. UC Berkeley Haas, $203,000. Dartmouth Tuck, $230,000. These are the 2019 estimated total costs of completing a Master's of Business Administration at the above noted institutions. As expensive as this sounds, an MBA continues to be a reliable magnifier of salary potential. According to a 2018 survey by the Graduate Management and Mission Council, 2016 and 2017 grads saw their post-MBA salaries rise by a median of $40,000. Among respondents surveyed, 82% agreed that B-School increased their earning power. But is it worth it? While no one would argue that the next CEO of a billion-dollar multinational company is well-served by these two expensive years of education, the grand majority of us have much less lofty aspirations. Maybe we want to start our own small business venture, create a product or render a service, free ourselves from the constraints of employment and control our own destinies, live the great American dream. What sort of education will serve us best? When Alan Donegan went to a traditional business support service to get help with his business idea, the experience was so off-putting that he almost gave up. Alan's three-page letter of complaint landed on the desk of Simon Payne, who met Alan for coffee for what was to become the beginning of a movement to democratize entrepreneurship. What Simon predicted was to be the worst meeting of the year turned out to be the best meeting of the decade as they swapped ideas, knowledge, and opportunities. Simon had been coaching grassroots startups in disadvantaged communities across the Southeast and knew that business plans didn't help anyone. 
Alan knew the only way to know if a business idea was going to work was to sell. They decided right then and there to work together to provide a solution. And thus, the Rebel Business School was born. I've told this story before. When I was in medical school, becoming a doctor, I had this opportunity. You see, being in the physician program at Northwestern for one extra year, we could go to the business school and come out with not only an MD, but an MBA. And this was from the prestigious Kellogg School of Business tied to Northwestern. It meant a lot. And as I was looking at this program, the only thought that kept going through my mind is there is no way I'm going to delay becoming a doctor for a whole year. And my wife looked at me and she said, this is a stunning opportunity. You're always talking about businesses. Why not do it? And I was having nothing of it. And so I left out on that opportunity. I went to residency and became a practicing doctor. And what do you know? Within the first few years, I started a business selling and buying artwork. And then after that, I opened up my own medical practice where I was in charge of hiring and firing. I had to understand the books and accounting. It was all my responsibility. So sometimes when I look back, I think, wow. My wife was right. I could have really used that MBA. But then other times I wonder, should I have really spent a full year and spent all that money getting a degree? Because when it comes down to it, I kind of figured it out. Between friends and family and the internet, I could figure out how to run that business. And I did a pretty good job. So it begs the question, is business school right for you? And better yet, which type of business school? Alan Donegan and Simon Payne created the Pop-Up Business School in 2011, where they travel the world to help people start up their own businesses doing what they love. They have recently rebranded to the Rebel Business School, and today we are going to discuss why. But first, Alan and Simon, welcome to the show. Doc G, I've been looking forward to this. I'm so excited to be here and to have Simon with me. Who is this man who keeps following me around? (laughs) When I first had Alan on the show, we talked a lot about the forming of the Pop-Up Business School, and he kept on bringing up this guy, Simon. So I'm glad to have you on together to talk about this major change. Before we do, however, Alan, let me push back on you a little bit here and say, what's wrong with the traditional business school that people go to? I mean, people for you know decades, maybe centuries have been going to traditional business schools. What's wrong with that model? So I think it depends on the outcome you want, which is always the consultant's answer is it depends. If you want to go and run a Fortune 500 company, go to business school. If you want to run a giant company, go to business school. If you want to start your own business, avoid business school at all costs, because I think it actually teaches you the wrong things. It teaches you actually to think like a big business, and that's not how you start a small business. And one of the major things you need starting a business is sales skills. Where's that on your average MBA curriculum? Where's sales class? Where's sales skills? It just like it might be an afterthought with a workshop in the afternoon, but it's not really teaching you what you need to start a business. And it is very different. 
running a business, starting a business, two different skills, two different things. So what do you want? And then we can decide whether business school is the place for you to go or not. It's a salient point, right? Because most of the businesses out there are not these huge giant companies. They're the moms and pops, the solopreneurs who are making a living doing what they do. And as you were pointing out, it sounds like a a lot of traditional business schools don't address those things. Simon, before we get to all that, let's start at the beginning. You originally met Alan when he came to you with a complaint. Is that right? Weren't you working for a government program about starting businesses? And he was pissed off. He was really pissed off, Doc G. Like, let me tell you this. Who do you know that would write a three-page handwritten letter of complaint and find the person responsible for not only running the contract, but actually commissioning the contract? So Alan hunted this poor guy down. His name's Glenn Atherfold. He's a really lovely guy. And he delivered a letter to him. And the letter outlined why his experience of a government-funded business support organization had almost put him off starting a business. And, and and the thing that about this letter that really struck me, and I'll tell you about what happened afterwards in a minute, but but uh, Alan, I'm going to talk about you behind your back. Just pretend that you weren't here. Alan, <laughs> <laughs> Alan is, he's very smart. He's white. He's middle class. He had a private education. He's very resourceful. He's got a bunch of ideas. He's got a very smart wife. He's, uh, you know, he's got someone to bounce ideas off of. He's got money in the bank. If the traditional approach to starting a business is putting this guy off, what's it doing for everybody else, right? All of us other mere mortals that don't have some of these privileges. And that's the thing that interested me the most. And what I thought was going to be a very, very long and painful meeting has become (laughs) a very long and painful (laughs) business relationship. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Like, I mean, that, that coffee, that coffee has changed both of our lives and we didn't go into business straight away. We went through a process of becoming friends. We, we dabbled in a few projects together. We kept swapping ideas. We kept swapping book recommendations. And four years later, we ran the very first course and, and that changed everything. For so many people now, I'm proud to say. Alan, talk about that first meeting. I mean, you went in all guns loaded, ready to maybe even fight with this guy. And you come out with a friend first and eventually a business partner. Well, I think it's it's very interesting. So my approach to meetings is I actually generally get wound up to write the complaint letter to do the thing. However, when I get to the meeting... I always try and understand the other person first. And I think that is my foundational piece is tell me about you. Tell me what you do. Let me understand you. And I I can't tell you the number of times that has saved me from making stupid decisions because you go in and understand the other person and then you go, okay, now I understand. Now I know where my energy should be directed. But yeah, I, Anger is an incredibly powerful tool for me to make things happen, but it's not useful for the first meeting. Uh, <laughs> let's start by understanding, then I'll get angry later. Yeah, I'm not sure what Simon's going to say to that. I've seen you use your emotion, but I think, you know, 
I can see the results of it. And, but I think what, what you've learned is that to use it tactically, you know, and using anger tactically rather than in the heat of the moment sometimes. I mean, we all get angry, we all get cross. But actually, my, my strongest memory from that meeting, and I, I went there fully prepared. I mean, I went there with a flak jacket on. Like, you, it's a, my, my bo- I remember my boss, Deborah, I remember her, she was walking around the office, like holding the letter. And she was, you know, it was like how a shark might kind of go through the, the, the sort of shallow waters looking for something to eat. And uh, I thought this might be a good time to do up my shoelace. <laughs> so I remember bending down underneath the desk. I just do my shoelace now. Oh, and uh, as, as I put my head up, she's standing over me. Ah, Simon, I have this letter. And I read the letter and I thought, who the hell, who the hell writes three page handwritten letters? <laughs> like this is 2008, dude, what are you doing? And I, I went there fully expecting, I mean, they call it service recovery, don't they, in corporate land? You guys, I was a service recovery meeting. Someone's had a bad experience. I'm the guy they wheel out on the charm offensive to go and see what I can do to, to help this guy. The very first question Alan asked me was, I mean, I, I think I'd barely sat down. He'd ordered a bucket of coffee and he went, what can I do to help you? And I stared at him for about, I would say probably what felt like a lifetime. It's probably a good 10 seconds. I just stared at him. No, no, no. You've got this wrong, sunshine. I'm here to help you. That's why I'm in this cafe, you know, holding your letter. I'm here to help you. The very first question Alan asked me was, what can I do to help you? And I tell you what, I've, I've learned. I've learned more from this man than I have anyone else on planet Earth. In that moment, it completely changed the vibe of the meeting. It was a phenomenal conversation. It was so inspiring. It was the last thing that I expected that conversation to be. It was just, it was just, it was about possibility, not impossibility. From that moment on, it was all about creation. Alan, I want to talk about that moment and tactics because to me, what I've learned of you and pop up business, eventually Rebel Business School, is your tactics seem revolutionary. And so going to that moment where you're sitting down with him, you gave him a complaint letter. Why, why did you have the wherewithal to ask him, how can I help you? It seems like a very interesting tactic to begin the conversation with. How did I have the wherewithal? There's a sentence that I learned years ago that has impacted me massively. And I think it was originally from Zig Ziglar. He said, you can have anything you want in life if asterisks you help enough other people get what they want. And I have found that to be incredibly true in my world. And if I can help other people, if I can give, if I can create change, that's the way you get wealthy in business. (laughs) Like have impact, help other people improve their lives and then charge them for it. Obviously, we're going to make some cash. That's good. And that has helped me to do it. And I need reminding of it regularly But it's those fundamental thoughts. And I think there's a handful of fundamental principles, fundamental thoughts that I like to operate by that I didn't learn at school, that I didn't learn anywhere like that, that I learned in the self-development world. But these foundational things, these principles that drive my life, they come back to me every time I'm trying to run a meeting, every time I'm trying to do something. It's like, okay, go back to the principles. That's where you need to start. And I think if we all operated from those first principles of how can I give the way to truly get wealthy is by giving like those, if we can operate from there, that changes the way you approach the meeting changes the way what you do in life. 
Simon, the thread that connects what both of you are talking about is there is a certain rebelliousness in your opinions about how you start and run businesses. Why ever did you start with the moniker pop-up business school? Like, where did it come from? And why was that the kind of thread that you carried for all those years? This is the moment when I'm going to give you a, a great insight into fantastic strategic minds of successful businessmen and women. If only that was true, Doc G, let me tell you exactly what happened. We originally called, we were originally wanted to call what we were doing the Rebel Business School. We set out to build a business school that makes people money rather than costs people money. So we had this right from the early days, this kind of democratization of business skills and entrepreneurship at the very core of it. We wanted to help anybody that wanted to start a business, regardless of what their starting position was, to break it down into the the skills and the tools and you know the practical help that people actually need, some confidence, some inspiration, some key bits of information for free at the beginning. And we called it the Rebel Business School. That's what we wanted to become. And then we quickly discovered that for us, we, we just didn't want a building. And it was going to cost us, you know, <laughs> 250, 300,000 um, dollars, pounds to, to have a building. That's the last thing we wanted. I think one of us went, I can't remember who it was. Should we just pop up then? We don't really want a building. Let's just create a business school that pops up. And I think in that moment we went, oh, oh yeah, we could, school. yeah, let's just, let's just pop up. Uh, and the idea of the Rebel Business School kind of took a back seat, but I think we were always working towards you know, in the background, we're kind of going, yeah, no, maybe one day we'll have a building, we'll have a location, we'll have a, a an HQ, a, a place. And that was always kind of, you know, something that we were working towards and sharing with our sponsors and our clients of, of a dream. But actually, it just meant that we could help more people. We weren't tied to a, one particular location and, uh, and off we went. Because that original idea was education doesn't really teach you what you need to know. If I look at all the things I use in my day-to-day life, Doc, it is how to present, how to communicate, how to sell, how to market. Like None of that stuff that I use on a day, how to influence, how to stay directed. None of the stuff that I actually use on a day-to-day basis was taught by my education. And I think there was this, in my mind, this incredible hole of what people actually needed to be successful in life and what I wish they'd really taught me because I didn't get any of the stuff that I find useful today. I mean, obviously, how to speak, how to write, like learning the letters of the alphabet, the early stuff is incredibly useful, don't get me wrong. But the real stuff that I use, how to sell, how to run a presentation, none of that was taught in education. So there was a huge hole and that's what we wanted to get out there and fix and Give the people what they really need because I needed it. Like, why didn't you teach me? Come on. Simon, one of the great reasons that the word rebel fits is a lot of what you're talking about is counterintuitive. I mean, you've already basically said, look, building a business should earn you money, not cost you money. You're saying things like education doesn't provide you what you need. On the other hand, your seminars, what started as the pop-up business school, our short seminars, we're talking about comparing what you guys do to two years of a full MBA business curriculum. Is one of the rebellious thoughts that you can fit this teaching into a much shorter period of time? That's really interesting. I, I never thought of it from that perspective, actually, Dr. G, but you've just reminded me, and Alan, Alan's been in exactly the same room as me, 
at uh, a university, a business school in the UK. And the feedback that we've regularly got is I've learned more in two hours with you than in my entire MBA program. And it's not that we're doing anything that's necessarily groundbreaking. I mean, we are simplifying it, but, but it's, it's grounded in practical. You know what I mean? It's practical help. It's the stuff that not only am I telling you something, you're not, you're not teaching you something, and I'm not necessarily professing to be the world's expert. I might be a couple of steps ahead of you, but I can show you the path. Now you're going to walk through it. Not next year, not in five years' time. Now, pick up your phone. Let's make the first call. And it's things like that that I think, and you're right, it is, it is in some ways, it's counterintuitive. It is rebellious. I've had plenty of people that have, in fact, it's happened recently. There's a, a business advisor in the northeast of the UK that said what we're doing is dangerous. It teaches people something that, you know, that they shouldn't be taught this stuff in this way. We teach people how to do it like this. You need a business plan. Why, why would you not have a business plan to start a business? And it was like, wow, I mean, th- I mean, this is strong. And I said to her, you know, you can start a business in 15 minutes. You know, why would I want to wait until I've written a business plan that, by the way, is a work of fiction? Because you don't know about that business plan until, until you put, you know, your product or service in front of a customer. That's the real test, isn't it? And it was fascinating that we're still getting pushed back now, even in the 21st century. Alan, are we conditioned to believe that it's more complicated than it is? <laughs> oh, don't get me started on the finance world making it more complicated than it is, Doc G. You know that. Like there is profit in overcomplication. Because in the finance world, if I don't know how to invest, well, I need to pay an advisor to help me invest. Whereas if you go to jail, Colin's simple path of wealth. Let's just buy a Vanguard index fund and get on with life. And there is profit and overcomplication. An MBA, I mean, so one little caveat here is if you're thinking you're going to go and run Microsoft, well, an MBA is going to be quite useful. That level of complication, like you're running an organization with 3,000 people, multiple products, routes to market, like you need that. If you're starting a small business that sells one or two products to people and you can make good money doing that, you don't need that level of complexity. And I regularly repeat to people, we make this too complex. We make this too complex. Like, and Simon, Simon helped me to do this when I first said to him, the secret of starting a business is like, he loves to prep the room. He goes, okay, Alan's going to tell you the secret to starting a business. Close the windows, close the doors, (laughs) don't tell anyone. And then I go, okay, the secret to starting a business, sell something to somebody. (laughs) Like if you sell something, you have a business. Like it's not that difficult. Sell something, you have a business, you deliver a product or service, the customer's happy, you do it again, you earn some money. Like it's, it's not as complex as people make it out. There are nuances, there are details, there is a lot to learn. But over-complexity is where a lot of people create profit. The thing that you just triggered for me, Alan, is that we've had this conversation many times. Business needs to be repeatable. Therefore, it needs to be simplified. Because the chances of you happening across a business idea that excites you, that works brilliantly for you first time round and it's very first iteration that is something that in five years time you've made the money that you wanted to make you've built the life and the business that you wanted to create 
first go, if that happens first time round, two things jump into my head. Number one, I'm going to be really pissed off because it's taken me years and years and years of, <laughs> you know, trial and error. And, and like Alan and I have got, you know, plenty, probably close to a hundred business projects, you know, in our past that we go, yeah, that didn't work. Yeah. I tried that. It kind of worked. I kind of liked it, but it wasn't quite right. Was it? And, and we, we were sort of tacking our way to success. So that for me, the, the, the way that business is taught traditionally and all of its complexities and, and so on, it's not sustainable because it, it, it's not a repeatable model. If it's based on business plan and risk and taking on debt and investors and so on, when it goes wrong, it makes it really, really hard to bounce back from that. And actually, you know, if you haven't spent any money and you're just doing a little experiment, well, you've you kind of de-risked it. If it's de-risked, it means it doesn't work, doesn't matter. You can then take the learnings and apply it to the next thing at pace. I mean, it used to take me maybe three or four years to bounce back from a failure. Well, now it's probably, I might be grumpy for an hour, but we'll, we'll be good to go again in an hour's time, you know. Alan, Simon just kind of made fun of this idea, or maybe you just made fun of this idea that you closed the windows and, and everyone gathered in close to hear about the secret sauce. But one of the things that I gathered from our last conversation is that there is a secret sauce to business building and one that maybe has been underplayed a lot in the traditional model. We seem to focus more on the details and overcomplicate them, but we tend to underplay the creativity. Is that the secret sauce? I I don't really like the term secret sauce because it implies there's something that you have to pay for that is only available to a few and i think anyone can do this i i guess the way you're saying it is secret source is the like what makes the difference between someone who makes it and someone who doesn't creativity is one thing the ability to flex is another thing i think really the ability to communicate and to sell is one of the biggest things because people are scared of selling. They're scared of putting the product out there. And I don't know, if there was one magic ingredient, I would say if you could learn this, it will improve your chances of success. I'd actually say it was sales and marketing because the best product, the best service never wins. It's the best marketed or the best sold product that wins. And I, I don't know, like creativity is lovely, but sell some stuff. <laughs> I, you know Alan what you just said then I'm going to completely disagree with you it, it's just like only because I feel like it I just feel like disagreeing with you today you know you know we're on the same page I think no that's bullshit Alan what you're talking about it's not sales but I tell you what the thing that you just triggered you're absolutely right of course completely agree with you it is all about sales sales is the lifeblood of anything you know when it comes to these business things the thing that just struck me, and I think is the difference, is those people that take action. Because whether or not you sell something first time round, second time round, third time round, 10th time round, it's the action that you take that gets you closer to being able to make a sale. So the, the people, and I think about all of the, the incredible people that we've met over the years, we had, you know, the best part of two and a half thousand people came through our courses in the UK alone last year, which is, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I'll take that. It, what, what's interesting for me is that the ones that the ones that are still in the game are the ones that take action because they've they've learned like exactly what you said, Doc G. Right at the start of this recording, you said, "I kind of figured it out," 
And the people that take action, the more action they take, they're more likely to figure out how to sell. They're more likely to realize, hang on a minute, I just need to be excited, don't I? If I'm excited, I'm more likely to make a sale and so on. And that's that's the that's the, the build that I would have on, on what you said. Let's take a break. Simon Payne, Nal and Donegan are the creators of the Rebel Business School, an alternative business school that is the complete opposite of the traditional education. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Here at Earn and Invest, we love to talk about financial independence, financial freedom, and personal finance. And we also touch upon real estate. But you know where you can go to really learn the ins and outs of real estate and how it leads to financial independence? That is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. Chad, also known as the coach, basically has two types of episodes, one in which he tells you all the tips and tricks how to use this asset class for financial freedom, and the other is he has guests, real-life examples, proof of concept about how you can use real estate to move towards financial independence. It's a wonderful podcast. I think you should check them out. Go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com. Take a listen to his podcast. You won't regret it. Let me reintroduce you. Alan Donegan and Simon Payne created the Rebel Business School to become the only one in the world where you could earn back the cost of tuition in the first few months of arriving. Alan, let's talk a little bit about figuring it out. You guys started in 2011, 2012 with the pop-up business school. How has your model evolved over time? Especially right now, you know, we're in a time of pandemic and COVID. Has your message changed? It's really interesting. The way of delivery has changed because a pandemic has changed everything and we can't get face to face. I'm like, I'm not allowed to breathe on people as I used to when they sat in the front row. So we have to be a little bit more careful. However, the message start for free, run a mini experiment. It takes money to make money is not true. Try it this way. The message we've enhanced, we've grown it. But it's fundamentally the same thing. It's fundamentally the same message, which is 
breaking those societal norms and the pressure and all of those bits. And society says, write a business plan, borrow a loan. It takes money to make money. The rich get rich, the poor get poorer. It says all these things to us that trap us. And that's what we spend our time trying to smash. That's what we try and spend our time trying to free people from these generic beliefs. So the message the message hasn't really changed. The delivery method has had to flex massively. For me, it's never been more important than right now. Our message of teaching debt-free entrepreneurship, you know, being able to start something without spending any money, without the need for a long business plan that you're never going to read ever again, giving people the confidence, the skills to be able to go out there and make something happen for themselves This moment in time is absolutely critical. And I think, you know, traditional teaching and traditional support methods of business have actually got a stranglehold that's preventing people from actually experimenting with business because they think, you know, the the culture is, oh, I need a plan. I need money. I need to, you know, I can't start a business because I haven't got any money and it's too risky. Something like a third of of people that are thinking about starting a business probably won't follow through because they're scared. It's too risky. That's the bit that we're smashing down. And it has never been important, more important than right now. Who's the biggest supplier of startup advice? It's banks. And how do banks make their money? Startup loans. So I have this big thing. Be careful who you are taking advice on and work out how they make money. Same in the finance world. If you're going to an advisor, how are they making their money? Are you paying them up front? Are they earning commission off recommending products? Just be careful because it colors their advice. And that's why we've always wanted our, no one has ever paid to come at one of our events. We find sponsors, we give it away for free, and we want anyone to be able to make money doing something they love. And like, let's make it free. Let's make it available to anyone because this stuff shouldn't be a secret it should be available to everyone. Like It's your right to go out there and make your own money and live in the world and play the game. And like, let's teach you the rules of the game. We, we've been successful. Like I feel I've been very successful at the game. So let me share what I've learned on my playing the game. Simon, it sounds like the message is the same. Why the rebrand? Why become the Rebel Business School instead of Pop-Up? Doc G, I asked myself that exact question the night before the the new brand was about to uh, was about to drop. You know, I, I I did I had a bit of a sleepless night. I was thinking to myself, we got eight years of brand equity that are you know are just about to go, you know, in replace of something else. And I'm thinking, have we have we is this a terrible mistake? And I woke up on Monday morning, not sure. By Monday afternoon, it was actually my son. My son said something to me, which made me realize this is exactly the right thing to do. And then I kind of breathed a sigh of relief because I, I was showing in the, the, the brand playbook. We've never had a brand playbook before. This is very exciting. I was showing him the stuff. And he said, yeah, this looks really good, Dad. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what you've achieved and I'm, I'm pleased for you. And he said, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And I said, well, yeah, it does. But why, why do you think it makes perfect sense? And I got my pen ready. He said, I know, I know what you stand for by your name. I said, I know what it means. He said, pop-up business school, it means that you pop up, but it doesn't really demonstrate to me. It doesn't show me what you believe in. It just shows me that you're very flexible in your style of delivery. And, uh, he, and he said, but, but Rebel, 
by by calling yourself a rebel business school, I know exactly what it is. You're doing it differently, aren't you? And you're showing people that they can start a business differently. He said, that's much more about what you guys are all about. And, and he said, frankly, Alan's probably the biggest rebel I've ever met in my life. So it kind of works for both of you, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's where that's where it, it kind of evolved in that way. It helped us go back to our roots. But it, but most importantly, from the name, what what you're going to get. And, it's, and I think people come to our courses expecting it to be men in suits talking about business strategies and business plans and what they find is something quite different they find it empowering they and some people find it life-changing i'm very proud to say so the the branding is all about helping to translate you know that expectation to be much closer to what what the thing is that you're going to experience Alan, was there some of that fear for you also that people wouldn't recognize who you are anymore people who had been aware of you before There was definitely some of that fear. We'd had the name for so long, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. And the podcast is called Rebel Entrepreneur. And I had a very simple reason. We're looking at getting a permanent building. So after nine years of doing this, we've been offered a building in Westminster in London. So we're going to set up a permanent place and you can't call the permanent place pop up. So for me, it was very simple. It's like, we need a rebrand because you can't be pop-up business school if you have a permanent home. That's interesting, Simon. Does that mean that you will not be traveling as much and that most of your seminars will be, people will travel to you as opposed to you travel to them? I still fully expect us to be traveling as soon as travel restrictions are lifted and it's safe to do so. I think Alan and I have, have been very clear that whenever our events rock up in town, it creates a buzz. It creates a huge buzz and we tend to go to towns and cities that that no one goes to, right? So actually when we turn up in a place that is perhaps less obvious, people of course fully expect us to go to, you know, to go to London, to New York, to Denver, to, you know, places across the UK and other countries too. But they don't expect us to go to the places that 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 these kind of seminars never appear in. So actually that that's still really important to us. And I think what we've got now is the best of both worlds. We can you know, we, we're, we've been able to deliver our events really effectively on Zoom. We've been able to deliver our events. We've delivered them in wedding marquees, in empty shop units. We've delivered them in the middle of a field. We've delivered them in a castle. You know, there's no, there's no boundaries to us. You know, and I think for me, it's about, it's the best of both worlds, but also we're going to have a, a, a fantastic building in central London that gives us a base to run our stuff from too. For me, the travel is really important because if you want to help the people that need the help the most, they're not the ones who are going to leave the town and go to an event. They're the ones you have to go to them. So if you really want to help the people who need it the most, you need to go to them. It's an interesting question, Simon. Yeah, it makes sense. The people who are willing to buy a ticket, sign up for a seminar and show up, probably already have some of those tools that it takes to start a business because they've already done the hard part, which is those first few steps of taking action. Yeah, exactly that. And I think, you know, we fully expect that when people sign up for one of our courses, we fully expect that not everyone turns up. It's just, it's a free seminar. And, uh, you know, if it's free, then there's no commitment. And actually what we're doing partly through the brand, but all of our other work is about, helping people to understand that actually this is the thing, whether you've started a business and you're struggling to get the results or whether you, you're, you're someone who's got a whole bunch of ideas, but you don't know where to begin. There's something there for you. 
Alan, this is a different world than the one in which you started Pop-Up Business School in 2011. Tell me a little about how your pop-up graduates are doing in this time of pandemic. How are they evolving and changing and pivoting to still be successful? Well, it's a challenge for all of us. Let's take one example. There's Katie and Andrew who started Time Trap, which is an escape room. Escape rooms in a, you don't really want to be putting a bunch of people together in a closed room and saying, get out after an hour. This is not good for Corona. So (laughs) they got completely shut down. They opened a little bit last summer, but they got shut down again. They had to pivot. They were selling online escape rooms. They've been doing mobile events. They've been doing everything they can to survive. And I think that's what a huge number of people have been doing. If you took, we've got a wonderful lady in Kent. She's called the bra boss of Kent and she does bra fittings. Also not entirely COVID friendly because you're in a closed space. You need to be because people aren't wearing many clothes and it's close. So like these things, like it's really not been good for a lot of the small businesses we've helped. Luckily, the UK has had the furlough scheme, which covers people's salaries and has protected a few people. A lot of the small business owners fell through the gaps and it's not been ideal. But in a way, it's been survive any way you can to get to the next step. And I think the advice that we give financially, that you give financially, of having a big emergency fund, of looking after your finances, has been more important than ever. And well, that's the only reason our business survived is because we had a big emergency fund. Only reason. To build on that, Alan, I think our message very early, we were quite quick out of the blocks. And when I saw when the lockdown was happening, I'm thinking to myself, all of these fledgling businesses are probably not going to qualify for any support from the government of whichever country they're in. So this is a risk. This is a huge risk that all of our good work over the last few years was at risk of being undone. And I think the message that we went out very early with was don't let this pandemic define you. Don't let this thing shape negatively the future. Like let's grip it by the husk. You know, you're going to adapt. You might have to go into a completely different direction. You might have to start something new. You might decide just to hide under the duvet and ride it out because you've got enough cash in the bank. Whatever is the right thing for you, let's let's just not let this thing define us. Let you know, take responsibility for being creative and coming up with different ideas. It's possible. Just because it feels like everything's the resources are scarce right now. There are plenty of people out there that have got a lot of money and they can't spend it anywhere. Like Joanna, as an example, the the business that uh, that Alan mentioned, she had her best month as soon as the country opened up in June. Best month ever. So I think it's, you know, it's about giving that message of, of what's possible, not what's impossible. And there's like Adam, the craft box club. He sells craft boxes so you can do crafting at home. Like, what an incredible time for him because no one could leave the house. His sales went through the roof. So there's, in every major change, there is knockout opportunity for some and there is knockout problems for others. You just need to find them. And you can either stay on the problem side and look for what's wrong or you can look for where the opportunity is because there is knockout opportunity in change. 
Simon, let's talk about some of that opportunity that came up because of the pandemic. When I'm thinking of the Rebel Business School, I have to take into consideration the fact that traditional education has really been rocked by this pandemic. And one thing people have seen is that online and virtual learning and alternative forms of learning have been more successful than ever. Do you think the pandemic has helped the Rebel Business School's message and people maybe are ready to pivot away from some of the traditional educational methods that they've used in the past? Completely. I think it's helped us as a business. I think it's, you know, I mean, we've been talking about doing stuff online for three or four years and you know, looking back, you go, oh, I wish we'd done that sooner. <laughs> but, you know, it's that the conventional wisdom that, that we had even, you know, we go, well, look, you've got to be in the room to fully experience our thing. You know, how many businesses and how many education providers had that belief? And actually, I mean, some of our results with online delivery have been better than in the room. And that and that was sort of challenging for me as, a, as an owner of this business, as a training business to go, wait a minute. So, we had a higher percentage of people making sales on that course. And in fact, one of our best performing courses of 2020 in terms of people making sales was actually the one that was that had to be closed halfway through the course. So we shut the course down on, on a Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. It was back up and running Tuesday morning, 10 a.m. No loss of service. We'd figured out how to deliver it online. And that was our one of our best performing courses of, of last year. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> the opportunities here are absolutely huge. There's such a huge percentage increase in people taking up, you know, online learning in all different types of subject areas and, and specialisms. I think this is a phenomenal opportunity, not just for us, but for anyone that's working in this space right now. Alan, I recently had a guest on the Earn and Invest podcast, Cody Sanchez, who suggested that this is a particularly good time to buy small businesses as opposed to create them. Her point being is that there are many small businesses out there that are already cash flowing and someone else has already done all the hard work of making them. I'm wondering what you think about that as opposed to your model, which I think has mostly been building a business ground up. I think that's a fascinating idea. The key bit I always say is that people are taking loans to try and jump from where they are to get to a successful business as quick as possible. And they think money is the bit that's going to get them there. The challenge with that is if you jump all the way and go straight to opening the shop, you go straight to the actual thing, you haven't gone through the learning that you need to actually run it. So I would be saying to the people listening, if you know the industry and you have done the learning to know how to do it, then buying a business sounds fun. It could be interesting. If you go, I've always wanted to own a wine bar and you've never owned one and you have no idea about the service industry and you're going to buy it and go into debt to do it. That sounds like a horrific idea. And I would say avoid at all costs. And so many people do that. They go, I've always wanted to own a restaurant, so I'll buy a small business that is this. They have no idea how to run one. It's like me going to buy a business that's, I don't know, like, I'll tell you what, I'll go, it's a great time to buy a golf course. 
because they're struggling. <laughs> I'll buy a golf course. I've never played golf. I don't know how to run a golf course. I'm sure I'll figure it out. I'm a smart chap. I'll go a million into debt and do it. I, that's the stuff nightmares are made of and homes are lost over. Yes, I mean, it's a good point. There is nothing like being there ground up to understand the mastery of a business, right? I don't know if you ever truly understand how a business runs unless you built it yourself. Yeah, for me, there are so many incredible learnings from working in micro enterprises and small businesses. And you're absolutely right. Like, I, I, I'm a big fan of going from scratch. I also think, look, it's an interesting idea to buy a business. And I think I kind of always wanted to do that. I thought that would be fun to apply the skills that we've learned to, you know, a different kind of business. But the key part of that sentence is apply the skills that we've learned in running that different kind of business. And I think there are so many brilliant opportunities. You just got to walk down the street in any town or city right now and look at the buildings and the businesses that are, are closing or pausing. I mean, there, there are some great opportunities. I'm kind of excited for that, but I don't fancy the idea of running a golf course with Alan. That's not on my agenda. So I got it. No golf courses for either of you. <laughs> so the rebrand was from the pop-up business school to the rebel business school. And I think really there are a few reasons why people rebrand. One is that they're changing their suite of services. They're changing their business model. The other is that they come upon a name or a brand that suits them better. And that certainly seems what has happened to you guys here. You are bringing all the same content, learning, and knowledge from the pop-up business school, but the Rebel Business School seems to be more about what you're doing and what you're teaching people, and that is very important. Right now, we are in the midst and hopefully close to the end of a pandemic, and we've all had to pivot in all sorts of ways in our lives, but we've also found out that there are better, cleaner newer ways to do things that we can learn virtually, we can interact virtually. And maybe going to business school is not the humdrum two-year expensive process that it used to be. Maybe it's meeting up with two guys like you and learning about how to sell, how to pivot, how to create how to communicate with people. So I wanted to thank you both for being on the show and talking about what is next for the Rebel Business School. How about each of you individually? I'll start with you, Alan. If people want to learn more, where can they find you and what's going on with, what's going on with your life? What a great question. What's going on with my life? If people want to find me, just Google Alan Donegan and I've got alandonegan.com comes up and you can find me through the Rebel Business School and the podcast on entrepreneurship and all that jazz you can find me if you want me i'm not that subtle yeah. it's far more interesting what's going on with my life my wife and i are running a finance course which is designed to like teach people more about finances and we're doing that for free to help people because we want to have fun we are eating all the mexican food in mexico and i'm getting slightly fatter dot g which i know is bad for my health but who can resist tacos al pastor and we're just having fun like we're living life and having fun and i think like if there was one message to the people out there this pandemic has been tough have a little more fun like find a way to have fun whether it's at home whether it's with your family whether it's in your business find a way to have a little bit more fun in 2021 we deserve a bit more fun 
And one of the ways you should definitely do that is to check out Alan's podcast. That's the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast. You can find it wherever you are listening to this podcast. Simon, same question for you. Where can people find you if they want to know more and what's going on in your life? Well, same same as Alan, find me through uh, Rebel Business School and find me on uh, Twitter. That's probably the weapon of choice that I still spend uh, a good amount of time on, Simon J. Payne. I'd love to hear from anybody that wants to connect there or, or LinkedIn. What's happening for me right now is, for me, we're just transitioning this thing into to get ready for scale. We want to have more impact. We believe that that anyone can start a business, anyone. And we're making it possible for anyone and everyone to give business a go, have an experiment and to try it out. And we launched in in Colombia, actually, just before Christmas, in the middle of a pandemic in a different language and on a different continent. We thought it was the obvious thing to do next. Right. So so we're looking at how we can take our message uh, into into more countries and to reach more people. And that's the bit that's lighting me up outside of that. There's not a huge amount of time right now. Other, I mean, and I've got I've got uh, three kids. My eldest son has just joined the army. My youngest son is five, so I'm getting him ready for his entrepreneurial journey. My middle son is figuring out: is it is it a career in drums? Does he is he going to be a drummer or is he going to be an entrepreneur? And I'm trying to kind of run both of those projects with him right now to see which is best. Yeah, so 2021 is transitioning the Rebel Business School into the next level and coming out of this pandemic sprinting. I was about to say, a drummer entrepreneur, that sounds like the ultimate rebel businessman to me. So, <laughs> Right, exactly that. A drummerpreneur, I think, if you're going to use one of those kind of words, right? This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Alan Donegan and Simon Payne from the Rebel Business School. That's a wrap. Welcome back. This is the community segment of Earn and Invest. There are a few simple ways to become part of this community. Of course, you can go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. That is our Facebook group. There we talk about current events. We talk about personal finance, the economy, you name it. We talk about it there. It is a place to build community. You can also find me and the Earn and Invest podcast on Twitter at at Earn and Invest. That's A-N Invest as well as Instagram at the same handle. For our community segment today, I wanted to talk about a tweet from one of our community members, the one, the only Landshark. You may remember him from episode 59 of the What's Up Next podcast. This was an episode about whether the fire has burned out. He is part of the Financial Independence Retire Early community. And today, Landshark, we are going to talk about a tweet that got a lot of reaction Tell me about that tweet you put out the other day. Thanks, Doc. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, so this tweet was just really something that I put in passing because, you know, now that the world has, has reopened and people are getting vaccinated, I actually saw my in-laws for the first time in over a year. So they just recently came and visited us. And so I tweeted, you know, how do I tell my in-laws that I'm retiring and that everything will be okay? We've been planning for early retirement uh, now for you know, several months, if not years. Um, And we're right now I'm planning on pulling the trigger in the first quarter of 2022. So it's coming up. But it's really important to me that they understand what it is that we're doing. And I didn't want to catch them by surprise. I I also respect them way too much. I'm really fortunate. I've got a great relationship with my in-laws. They are wonderful people, really supportive. 
um, really smart, you know, passionate people. But, um, you know, I, I felt like I owed them the respect of telling them that we're going to be doing this unconventional thing and that their grandkids are going to be okay and that their daughter is going to be okay because that was really important for me. And I also just didn't want them to think that I was going to be a bum. So, <laughs> so I, I, I uh, tweeted this out to just kind of get the perspective of the community because, you know, the financial independence community on Twitter is filled with a lot of really, you know, smart and interesting people who have, you know, different perspectives than I do. Um, so I got some really good, good advice from, from the responses to that tweet. And I, you know, used that tweet and that response to have the discussion with my in-laws about, you know, what things are going to look like going forward. We are going to talk about the specifics of that discussion, but before we do sketch us out a little bit about your biographical information so that we can feel for your, for your in-laws here, they're looking at you. How old are you? How many kids? What field is your profession in? Those kind of things. Sure. So I am 42 years old. My wife is 40, 40, uh, going on 41. Um, and we have two kids. We live in Colorado. Uh, my kids are elementary school age, so middle of elementary school. I am an attorney. I've been practicing for, you know, getting on uh, 15, 20 years um, as, a, as a trial, you know, business lawyer. And my wife is an engineer. We've, you know, we're really fortunate. We're in a good financial position. You know, our, our personal net worth right now with the market going on, the tear that it's going on is, you know, in excess of $4 million, including our house. So, you know, by no means are we struggling. We're, we're definitely in a, a very fortunate position. But, um, you know, I think like all uh, high earning, you know, professionals, type A personality people, if you don't love your job, if you're not like really passionate about it, it, it truly can burn out. And I think that's kind of what drew me to the topic that brought me on the first time for the, for the podcast. I'm burning out. And you know, the stress that I'm dealing with, with my, with my job, I'm definitely not somebody who can you know, leave things at work. I bring them home with me. And I think about all my clients and my cases in the middle of the night. And I'm starting to see uh, some adverse consequences to that stress in my personal life and with my health. You know, life is short. Uh, you know, our time and our health, you know, those are the, the two things that are, you know, non-renewable resources and, you know, money can't buy them. So, you know, we're proactively making that choice to, to walk away from W-2 income and onwards to early retirement. I really connect with your story, especially given the fact that I was in a very similar position to you, right? I was a doctor. I was getting burned out by work. I realized that before I could start explaining it to my other family members, to my parents, et cetera, I had to first come to terms with this change in identity. And I'm wondering, even before you got to this place where you're talking with your in-laws, did you get comfortable with this idea of walking away from that identity of being a lawyer? That's a great question, Doc. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think that I ever truly identified as a lawyer if that makes sense. You know, uh, a lot of people, you know, my best friend's a doctor. And since the day I met him in fourth grade, he always wanted to be a doctor and he's doing great. And he absolutely loves his, his profession. And it's, it's truly a calling for him. I became a lawyer almost by default. You know, I think a lot of liberal arts uh, graduates, I, I studied political science in college. Law was kind of like the default because you can't get a, a decent paying job as a political science major. So, you know, what else are you going to do with your life? I was always an artist. You know, I was, I was an artist and musician growing up. I think that's probably my passion and what I really gravitated towards. But I was also pragmatic and practical about things and, and recognized that I probably wasn't going to be able to make a decent living as an artist or a musician. So I listened to my parents. I listened to 
my friends. I listened to you know my my siblings who said you should really go to law school and think about that. And I did well. I did well in law school. I did well in college, and you know I earned a very good living. But I was never really drawn towards the law as a calling. So you know for me there were so many um, kind of negatives about the practice of law that I don't think I ever fully embraced the fact that I am a lawyer and walking away from it from, for me um, is not necessarily about finding a new identity because I'm too excited about the other things that I'm going to do post-retirement to really feel like, oh, I'm no longer you know, worth what I was worth because I'm no longer a practicing attorney. So before we jump into this conversation, before we go into the words that you actually spoke to your in-laws, because I know you've already had the conversation, let's look at what some people on Twitter suggested. Uh, this is kind of funny. And tell me what you think of these responses. Dylan from Dollar Revolution said, tell them it's time the next generation takes care of you and the kids have found good jobs. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a good one. I love Dylan. Yeah, he's, he's a funny guy. You know, it's it's easy to make light, right, of these kind of conversations. It's a very privileged place to be in our 40s and talking to our family members about not working again. But there's also a serious part to that, because like you said, you were worried about the sense of how would they react to knowing, for instance, that their daughter would be okay, because ultimately that's their daughter and their grandchildren. I mean, you're secondary, right? But (laughs) their daughter and their grandchildren, they just want to make sure they're okay. Stop ironing shirts said it's really just a crapshoot. As long as they know their daughter, grandkids are fine. It should be okay. Consultant work from home is a backup. What did you think about that? Did you have like, um, do you have a backup plan? Like if things don't go in the direction you want, or if you start worrying, do you have some plans of doing consulting work? Um, so I have, you know, right now I'm, I'm an equity partner in my law firm. Um, we do have kind of contract work that uh, attorneys do perform. So as, as a backup, you know, like I have, I have a bunch of clients that I've been working with for, for years. I think that even if I retire, even if I do no work, I'm going to be seeing kind of residual income from those clients because, you know, I brought them into the firm, even though others are going to be working on it, I'll see residual income from that work. I also have the, the ability to transition to, you know, a contract uh, position. So I think, you know, if, if push comes to shove, if there's a huge market decline or something like that, and something catastrophic happens to our finances, I think I will be able to, you know, find work as, as a practicing lawyer, you know, going forward. I also do have, have a side hustle. I wouldn't necessarily call it a side hustle, but I do have side income coming from actual other work. Um, it's uh, community service, uh, public service work that uh, I do get paid for, and it's kind of guaranteed for a certain period of time going into the future. And, you know, right now I'll be the beneficiary at least for a couple of years of, of Wi-Fi. My wife, she likes her job and she's actually not planning on retiring exactly when I'm pulling the trigger. She's thinking maybe, you know, two years, we'll see what happens and then she'll pull the trigger. So I don't think we're going to necessarily need to draw down on our savings immediately after I pull the trigger on early retirement. But yeah. yes, I'm, I'm very conservative and I, I, you know, I hesitate to just kind of pull the trigger without a backup plan. Yeah. And the power of not needing to withdraw the first few years is huge. So whether it's a spouse who works or some other income that's coming in, it it is definitely makes your plan much more safe. Mr. Taco came back with a little bit of a controversial reply. He said, I agree with the sentiment of others who recommend not telling them. 
It's very tough to understand for older folks who grew up with a work is life mindset. I mean, did that ever even enter your mind? Like just not telling them? Yeah. I mean, I saw that suggestion, but you know, given the relationship that I have with my in-laws, that, that wasn't a, uh, a question. I mean, the relationship that I have with my father-in-law, I probably text with him more than I do anybody else, more than my own parents, more than my own brother, uh, more than any of my friends. Like he's, he's my boy, right? He's, he's like my boy. And we talk about football and, you know, just kind of guy things. Cause he, he has two daughters, never had a son. And I think he, when I married his daughter, he, you know, fully embraced, embraced me. So I view him as much a, you know, father-in-law as I do like a friend. And, you know, I just respect him, respect both my, my in-laws way too much to not tell them it, it needed to be part of the conversation. And what about what Dr. Pay it back said? He said, just buy them Teslas. <laughs> Uh, that could, that could go, uh, you know, that that's one way to do it. Try to buy them off. But so we've talked about what your advice from the Twitterverse was. How did the conversation go itself? Yeah, so it was it was interesting. It was um, you know definitely one of those things that I needed to find the right time to to bring it you know, into the discussion. So what I ended up actually doing is I showed them our our model. I showed them the withdrawal model that we put together. Thanks to Robert from Stop Ironing Shirts for all the help with that. Uh, I also showed them our net worth uh, spreadsheet that just kind of showed where we are. And, you know, they had a bunch of different questions. What I did in that model was uh, what I thought was pretty realistic and conservative. I modeled, you know, 7% returns on our investment accounts. I modeled 2% inflation going into the future. Uh, they're they're a little more conservative, uh, understandably. You know, they're in their 70s and, you know, they've got a different asset allocation than we do. Uh, so they wanted to see what 5% returns would look like, or even three and a half percent returns would look like. But once they saw that, like under any of those circumstances that we weren't going to run out of money, that addressed the financial concern. I think they saw that, like, I had really thought this through. I showed them, okay, this is what, what, you know, social security is going to look like. And based on, you know, I even showed them physician on fires, uh, bend points, uh, you know, blog posts. And I was like, look, I calculated what our bend points are and we're getting diminishing returns. You know, we're at the second bend points and now like we're only seeing 15 cents on the dollar going forward. So, you know, that really, I think, put them at ease in terms of, okay, the, the financial thing is, is not the issue. But then their question that they had was really to stress the importance of retiring to something and not from something. And, you know, they just asked the questions of, you know, well, what are you going to do with your time? Like, aren't you going to be bored and, or, or just make sure that you're not bored. And, you know, this is going to be a, a long period of time that you're not, you know, working. So what exactly are you going to be doing with your time? And that's kind of where the discussion went from there. Two things come to mind. One is a question. Were they surprised by the acumen of your financials? Like, did they take a look at this and go, wow, we had no idea. And then I guess the second point is, it's interesting that they had the wherewithal to start thinking of these non-financial issues because most people, when you say, I'm going to retire early, they get so caught up on the financials, they don't even go to that next step. So first and foremost, were they surprised? And then the next question is, had they dealt with thinking about this stuff in the past before that they were able to make that jump to mindset and life and kind of meaning and purpose above and beyond money? You know, I think that they were not that surprised about the financial uh, situation. My my mother-in-law, you know, once I showed it to her, she said, oh, you should see our spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, she said, like, ours isn't as fancy as yours, but it does the same thing. Um, I think it was almost like there was a way for us to relate by having that conversation because we kind of both 
geeked out about the numbers. Uh, and, you know, so like, okay, well, here's when I showed her like the Roth, Roth conversion table that we had built out and we talked about required minimum distributions and they're not going to be applicable for, you know, the Roth accounts and, and all that. I think, I think she realized like, and we have, we had talked about finances over the years. So this wasn't like I was hitting them cold with the fact that, you know, we're paying attention to our finances. And, you know, like I said earlier, because we have such a good relationship, I've shared not necessarily like our net worth, but I, you know, I've shared how I've done in my career you know, going forward. Um, you know, when I started making decent money as, as a partner in a law firm, and I let them know when I got my bonuses, like, hey, this is, and to me, it was life-changing you know, money. And it was, um, and, and continues to be. So I, I don't think the financial aspect of it uh, really caught them by surprise. They also know that, you know, in my day job as a, as a practicing attorney, I'm also you know, working as the chief financial officer of our, our firm. So they know that I have the ability to at least look at the numbers and understand things and forecast things going into the future. But in terms of like the, the mindset and, you know, the shifting of you know, purpose and meaning of life, that was something that we never really talked about. You know, we never had a, a conversation about, you know, what would you do with your time if you didn't have to work? That just, that just never came up. It was definitely a worthwhile conversation because we started to have that conversation. So when they asked, you know, well, what are you going to be doing? You know, I, I told them honestly about like the stress and, you know, the situations that I'm facing right now with my current job and like the toll that it's taking and, you know, actually em- emphasized some of the beneficial aspects of, you know, what COVID has, if there are any, you know, beneficial aspects, kind of like the, the sea change in our lives that, that COVID has brought to us because, you know, now, Instead of commuting every day two hours, I get to walk my kids to school and pick them up every day. And you know, I told them just like how much value that that brings to my life. I mean, that's that's some of the best part of my day is is bringing my kids to school because I'm not going to have that opportunity forever. They're growing up way too fast. So you know, we talked about focusing on you know health and well being and really taking the time to, to exercise. And then you know, they know that I'm a musician and you know, passionate about art and that I'm going to be you know creating and, and learning and you know, doing a lot of you know passion projects on the side that uh, are things that I don't necessarily have the time for. In addition, you know, I'm going to be continuing to serve our community uh, in government service that I currently do, and then I'm going to continue to expand that that role. And then ultimately, just really spending time with my kids while they're in this this window where they really want to spend time with with their old man, right? Like right now, like my kids are are playing baseball, and there's nothing that they love more other than their video games. Than uh, you know, playing catch with a dad, and I know that that's going to be short-lived. So you know, I want to take advantage of it as much as possible. And I think once they saw that, like the priorities were really on the right things, that they were not con- concerned about kind of where things were going. All right, Landshark, wrap it up for us. There are people out there who will be having this conversation at some point. Hopefully, they're getting towards financial independence. They're thinking about retiring early. They may have to go talk to their parents or their in-laws. Is there some advice you can give, some basic first few steps that makes this easier? Well, I think I I would first recognize that um, if you don't have a good grasp on the numbers, it's going to be a really difficult conversation to have. Get your net worth dialed in in terms of you know understanding where the numbers are and where the trends are and then you know put together a withdrawal strategy that really uh, shows you know year by year how you're going to fund your early retirement because unless you have that that bottom line information about how the the nuts and bolts of it are going to work 
there are going to be questions that they're going to ask you that you won't be able to answer. But then, you know, secondarily, I think, you know, think long and hard about, you know, what you want to do with your life. And I think that's one of the things that we touched on on the previous podcast, that when you're working so hard, it's hard to think about what life after work is going to be like, because you don't have the time to think about it and to plan it. And it's tough. I mean, it, it really is tough and I can understand it. And I, I personally, I think like I truly haven't thought that through, but I'm actually looking for, forward to the time to actually decompress from work and, and unplug to think about that, you know, more in depth. And I don't think that's ever something that you fully think through, right? Like you evolve over time. And then, you know, lastly, like reach out, you know, whether you're, you're on you know, Facebook or other social media or Twitter and, you know, just your friends, um, you know, there's a lot to learn from, from the community. I've learned a lot from you. I've learned a lot from the community, really benefited from that. Um, Sometimes asking a question is, you know, the, the starting point to, you know, better understanding of, you know, how this is all going to, going to play out. And that's, 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 you know, what happened with me. I mean, who would have thought that by starting a, a joke Twitter handle, like I am Landshark that, you know, I'd have 2000 followers and, and be making connections that are having positive impact on my life. But you know, here we are. I just started that for my own, you know, personal enter- entertainment and edification, but it's actually worked out. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that I did because had I not done that, I wouldn't have been on your podcast. I wouldn't have made the connections that I made. And, and I don't think I would have gotten to the point where I could actually learn, you know, how to actually pull the trigger on early retirement. Landshark, I'm glad that you did too. It's funny. One thing that happens when you become part of a community is, that community, you grow and change with it. And as this community has grown, as the Financial Independence Retire Early community has grown, a lot of people, you and I included, have gleaned a lot of connection as well as information and know-how from being part of this community. So you kind of said, well, it was this silly Twitter thing that I started, but ultimately it dialed you into some knowledge and some friendships, which I think will serve you Congratulations, Landshark is early retiring in the first quarter of 2022. I hope it is everything that you expect and more. Thanks, Doc G. Keep up the good work with the Earn and Invest podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doc G. That's brilliant. Yeah, that was really appreciate you uh, inviting us on. Really do. Of of course, and and you know, when when someone does something like that, when they rebrand, I find it really exciting and interesting, and it gives us a good chance to take a magnifying glass to what you do and why it's important. And so that's why for podcasts like mine. That's what I want to do. Like, I want to put that magnifying glass down and say, okay, why do people do what they do and what can it teach us? And that was kind of what I was going towards with that interview. We're definitely going to promote the show and do all the normal stuff. Like, we will share it everywhere. And And I'll let you know when it comes out, et cetera. It's going to be four to six weeks. I'll edit it up. Here it comes, Doc G. Here it comes. Here it comes. You, Simon, is, knows what I was going to ask next. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. This is the moment that changes everything, right? This is the moment. It's a question like it. this. Uh, change everything. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll change anything in this instance because I've asked Doc G before, but like, I was going to say, we're going to do all the normal jazz. Like, what else can we do to support you? Yeah, I will let you know. So my goal for the future is going to be really to pump up the podcast. 
I will keep you in tune to what's going on in my life. And uh, as always, I will do the same for you guys in any way I can. Yeah, if you want to pump up the podcast and work on that, like if there's one thing I'm good at, it's coming up with ideas of how to do that. And I would happily do a brainstorming session with you. I would happily like sit on a phone and give you ideas. And I would you. just do that to hang out with you on top of it. <laughs> you know me, Alan. I'm a social guy. I just love to sit here and throw back ideas anyway. So that's Count me in for that too. Count me in. I'd love to help with that. Well, I, I most definitely will take you guys up on that. So I appreciate it. Yeah, we could do a little mastermind on how to grow the Earn and Invest podcast together. I think that would be fun and I would happily come yeah, along and play. I, I, I will definitely take you up on that because I'm going to be, I'm going to be in build mode because um, I'm just, I'm at that place. So, but as always, that. I think we can make that mutual. So, yes. All right. Yeah. Cool. cool. Take Thanks, it easy, fellas. I'm going to go try to get a nice walk in the my 50 degree Chicago weather with my wife. So I'll see you guys later. <laughs> see you soon. Bye. Great to Bye. meet you. Take care. Great meeting you, Simon. Bye. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.